Hello everyone, Redcoat here, lead designer and producer for Vernacular Games. I've got Dragon Coder here with me. Uh, say hello, Dragon Coder. Hello, Internet. And uh, today, uh, we haven't got our dice roller here, so we won't be uh, hitting RNG. Instead, uh, we're going to go into storytelling and a little bit about what's good about storytelling in games, uh, some, of the, some of the games that we think didn't do it so hot, and also what we can do to you know, try and do that a little bit better in the future. Uh, so actually, I'm going to hand this one off to Dragon Coder to start. Um, like, what do you think of, when you think of some games that have done it pretty well, uh, do you have any standouts in your gaming history? Well, uh, there's one that's always been kind of, it's a blast from the past for me, and it's certainly something in my mind that stands out as a really great uh, showpiece for what stories can be done in video games, or how stories can be done in video games, rather. It's a game series, really, a trilogy, uh, from the PlayStation era called Colony Wars. For background on it, you know, it's a space flight sim. They're not traditionally... well. We don't think of them anymore as very strong bastions of story. They're kind of more action, or they're the free-form, you know, sandbox games nowadays. But in the PlayStation era, in like early PC gaming, they were actually, you know, just kind of sortie simulators where you're going out as a fighter pilot in space, doing various missions. Uh, in Colony Wars uh, specifically, so the first game starts out. You know, you're fighting as a member of the this resistance against the Earth Empire that was going out from all the from Earth to all the various human worlds. And the interesting thing with the story on this one was not so much like how this what the story was or anything, but how it was portrayed and how you could see it. Because the if you fail a mission, you know the standard model is oh you failed the mission retry. On this one, you fail the mission, you get to see how that impacts the story, and you get to play from there. Now, this also meant that there was you know, a lot of different endings, and if you fail the first mission, you still got a game over. It was the first mission. You needed to f actually succeed that one, but though it was rather easy. But you know, later on, you, know, you could fail missions. You, know, you get halfway through the game, you start failing missions. You'll get a wildly different outcome at the end than if you had, you know, succeeded all the way through to the end. The best ending, you know, by winning everything, and well, I suppose this is the other really cool part about this, is that the canon ending that, that went into the next game was the second best ending that you could get in the first game. The, you know, the really best ending was, you know, you, you conquer and topple the Earth government, you conquer Seoul, and, and you remove the tyrannical Earth government. But the second best ending is, well, you get to the Earth system, or Soul system, rather, and then you seal it off so that the Earth government can't come out and do stuff anymore. And, you know, in the second game picks up, you're in the Empire soldier, and, you know, you're fighting back out from the Soul system, and the rebel government has turned tyrannical now, and so, you know, it kind of plays the other side of it. But it had that same mechanic for telling the story, you know, you you could fail missions but still see what happens and go on you know you could you could lose a battle every now and then and still keep the story mostly on track which is i suppose the other really cool thing you know it gave opportunities for the player to fail and see how that impacted things and um the third game had that to the same well, had had the same thing but it played off to less of an extent there was less of a clear and present other enemy um because at the end of the second game, the kind of the rebels and the the Earth government are kind of unified, and then in the third game, you're fighting the these alien things, and that one kind of faltered a bit. So thinking about uh, some of the game, like thinking about some of the games that I played that uh, actually caught me from the standpoint of their stories. Now these ones are a little bit in the more uh, traditional sense of a, of a story that you kind of, you know, you your interaction with the story is more that it's being told to you than necessarily you're, you're in it, you're changing it. Um, which is of note, because this means that it's not necessarily maximizing the usage of the, uh, of the medium, per se, but it's still kind of doing it well. 
a lot of the stuff that showed up in um, actually the Tales of series, um, specifically uh, Tales of Symphonia uh, and uh, to a, a little bit less of an extent, Tales of Graces. Well, not, not Tales of Graces, excuse me, although that one did have a decent story-ish. Not as strong as some of its as its counterparts, um, but uh, Tales of Vesperia, yeah, those those two in particular in the Tales of series. There's actually a lot of games in the Tales of series. Um, with Symphonia, it was specifically the story that was being told was actually very interesting. You had you had an interesting world that was happening, and the conflict itself was very multifaceted. Let's say um, because the the concept was that, you know, you basically find the mystic MacGuffin who is, in fact, who is a, a who as opposed to a what. And you take her and you're trying to save the world um, by setting up, by freeing up, well, I think it was like collecting the summon spirits. Uh, actually, I believe, if I remember correctly, it wasn't you were collecting this. The summon spirits didn't t- play a part until the second part of the story. Uh, you were... You were going to the the shrines to revive the mana in the world for the first part of the game. Right, right. And that's actually where we get to the crux, because you're reviving the mana in the world, but what you're actually doing, you find this out like later on, is that you're taking mana from another world. And being that your main character is kind of heroic, and you know your cast of characters are also kind of in that altruistic vein you end up with this conflict of, well, we don't want to just kill the other world to save our world. And so this existential crisis kind of starts happening where the characters are trying to figure out how to save both worlds. And at the same time, the world, the inhabitants of the other worlds are kind of still fighting for their own survival. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of intricacies and things there. I'm, I'm actually glossing over a great deal of stuff that happens in the game, partially because if you want to play it, you don't want spoilers. Yeah, I think you're glossing over about like 30 hours of gameplay <laughs> for the story. Yeah, yeah. It's a great game. You should play it. Um, well, okay, you should play it, but just know it's it's old. It, you want to get the special edition that came out a while ago that um, fixes the camera and, you know, makes it so that two-player and multiplayer player play is actually a little bit better. Um, but I digress. Uh, as far as storyline was concerned, that one was really interesting to me. Now, jumping over to Tales of Vesperia, um, which is a little bit clearer in my mind because I played that a little bit more recently because of the later game. Uh-huh. Tales of Vesperia, one of the things that it did really well was it just established some really strong characters. I remember one of the jokes we had when we got introduced to uh, Yuri Lowell, our, our main protagonist, purple dude, purple dude who was actually not a teenager. Shock. And a JRPG without a teenage main character, that is that is more rare than some would know. I think some of you know just how rare that is. But, um, yeah, he was actually, you know, kind of an adult, and he had actually aged that way. So it wasn't necessarily a coming-of-age story, but more of a deciding what to do about how the world, about how the world worked and actually sticking to your guns. Uh, when you make a decision. Um, and, I mean, we always joked about Yuri Lowell being kind of a Batman-type character, but he was a, he was a very stylish Batman-type character. And, of course, he had his foil in the form of... Was it Flynn? Yeah, yeah his name was Flynn. Yeah. Uh, it, he had his foil in the form of Flynn. What was interesting was they took the choice of... You didn't really see much of what Flynn was doing, and I think this was in part because it's an RPG... So you're sticking most of your time with the rest of the party. You just knew that he was trying to do things the right and upstanding way, whereas you were kind of the vigilante doing things on the doing things on the outside. But overall, it just had a very very strong cast of characters. The story was a little bit weaker. It didn't really have a very strong villain, but the characters themselves just stuck out a great deal in that game. So uh, yeah, that's kind of what I've got to say about that one. But moving forward into the concepts of some of the weaker story stories that we've seen in, uh, in games, uh, there's actually a plethora of things with weak story, but I think what we want to do is we want to kind of lock it into things that try to have a good story and end up weak anyway. Uh, so 
While I'm contemplating exactly where that is, uh, Dragon Coder, you got anything? Yeah. Um, so one that actually really sticks out into my mind, uh, very much a more recent game, uh, the Mass Effect series. Um, yeah, it's probably something where most of our listeners probably already know of this, but it's basically, you know, they tried to do, you know, branching storyline where your decisions mattered and all of that. And I'll admit it, to a point they succeeded. Um, there's definitely a lot of choices that you make that have consequences, even in later games. But the thing is, is that if if that's the point of the story, the games really, in a way, ended in Mass Effect 3 halfway through that. There's two particular points in that game where your previous choices actually have a major impact. And that's, um, um, well, okay, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't played it or already heard about it. But uh, on Tuchanka and on the uh, Corian homeworld. On these two planets, you know, storylines that have started in you know, Mass Effect 1 and 2, they have their culmination. And you have a really great sense of completion and finality there. The thing is that the game then continues with this whole overarching plot of the Reapers. And their conclusion at the end of the game 3, your choices up till then almost didn't matter because you were faced with one final choice, um, you know, left or right or, you know, after one of their patches, middle. And that determined your ending. Nothing else you did really mattered. It, it affected, you know, how people thought of you, it, who lived and who died, you know, kind of helped shape some of people's back, you know, epilogue stories. But overall, left, right, or center, that was the really big thing that affected the ending. And almost to an extent, it was the and the other side on it. Left and right were kind of the... How to put it? They were different flavors of the same ending. Humanity survives, things continue, but, you know, it's just whether or not you were in control of the Reapers or, or the Reapers died off. Yeah, definitely. That was one of the. That was actually one of the big things. Um, because I, I definitely, I do agree on the on the Mass Effect on the Mass Effect score. There was a lot of there were a lot of interesting attempts, a lot of interesting ideas there, um, and I have to give them kudos for for attempting them. But it does it does again come to the the fact that at the very end, a lot of your a lot of your earlier decisions um, just didn't quite factor in. Um, there's also some things with just implementation of um, some of the decisions uh, of how some of the decisions were, were done. Um, but this is more of a personal disappointment because it was something that I saw at the end of a Mass Effect 2 that I was just when I when I saw it and I was like, oh, that is amazing. Wait, why wasn't the rest of the game this? And that was uh, that was the the last mission in Mass Effect 2 because you know throughout the rest throughout the game you're doing this I, I think I'm I'm going to be really off base on my movies but it's kind of a dirty hairy uh, oceans uh, oceans 11 deal where you're gathering the the crew to do the thing it's not necessarily a heist but you're getting all of your people together your specialists and then you've got them um, the whole idea being that you need them to do this final thing. So like, okay, that's kind of cool. That's kind of interesting. And so it explains a little bit of why the last mission is so different from the rest. Um, but the last mission is basically, you. Uh, normally you go into a mission, you pick your two buddies, and you're like, all right, grunt, you're a grunt. You're my grunt now. And uh, then you get um, you get Tali, because who, who didn't love that character? Um, you know, somebody's probably saying, I hated her. But that's okay. You, you can have your opinion. Um, yeah, you take those guys down, you do your mission, and they might have a little bit of insight on what's happening. They'll change some of your dialogue options, your dialogue trails. Um, and then, you know, get back on the ship after you've, saved, after you've done your mission, and things will happen. So, with that, uh, the last mission, you choose, your, you choose your riding buddies, but all throughout the mission, the rest of your crew... 
you have to make decisions about where you're going to put them. Like, you get to a point where, like, we have to get through this room, and there's a hacking terminal that's inside of a superheated pipe. Uh, oh, yeah, spoilers. We already kind of gave that uh, warning, but I'm going to give it to you again. Turns out when you talk about story, you kind of spoil things. But, uh, so you're like, okay, so I need somebody who's good at hacking, but also somebody who, if they're put into a superheated situation, they don't just die. Um, and so you have to decide between, you know, do you put your metal man in there? Do you put your black dude in there? I, seriously, I didn't know any other defining traits of that character. I, I'm sorry, he's, he's just black. Um, this is a black man saying that a black man was black in a game. So don't worry, I'm not being racist. <laughs> anyway, um... The uh, So you make your decision, and you're like, okay, put them in there. Uh, but then you move on to the rest of the mission, and if you made a bad decision there, that person's kind of injured, and you can't put them into another section. And all throughout the mission, you have to make these decisions about, okay, who's best suited to this? I'm going to set them to go there. Um, and that made me feel a lot more like Commander Shepard, as opposed to just Shepard the, the, the crazy, super strong badass. You know, which, admittedly, there's a place for the power fantasy, but you're Commander Shepard. That's a part of the lore, so it that needs to be reflected in the mechanics. Yeah, and I, I actually I really agree with that, and I, I can understand why they didn't have that anywhere else in Mass Effect 2. You know, it's if you made really poor decisions in other missions, you, know, you would have been completely screwed on that mission. Although, admittedly, that would have made a really awesome story, you know, thing to do. But yeah, that is also. I was really sad that they didn't really have anything like that for Mass Effect Three, ever. You know, they introduced that awesome, really cool thing in Mass Effect Two, and I was actually kind of expecting something like that, if anything else, for the capstone mission for Mass Effect Three. You know, y- you kind of saw everyone else doing stuff. I think. Yeah, kind of, sorta. You kind of, sorta saw everyone else doing stuff in the in the sense of it's more of that. Cutscene. You remember this guy? Ah, uh-huh, ah, uh-huh, there he is. He's doing his thing. All right, back to the what you were doing. Okay, yeah. But yeah, it it again again it didn't give you the feeling of being Commander Shepard. It didn't make you feel like what you were deciding really mattered. You you know, it mattered for your own survival, but not for how the fate of the galaxy turned out, which was really supposed to be what that game was supposed to be about. It was you making choices and decisions that, you know, help shape the how this the galaxy could survive, you know, this thing that has been, you know, wiping off all sentient life, you know, for who knows how many times. So, while I was thinking about, well, trying to zero in on some games that it, that tried to do storytelling and then kind of failed at it, I thought of some more ones that, uh, that I remember for doing it good, uh, which this is kind of how thinking works, I suppose. But this brings me actually to um, the Star Ocean series uh, and how it handled a lot of its character additions. So the Star Ocean series is a little bit older. Um, like you have, I believe its originals were back on the SNES era and then we moved into the PlayStation era. I never got to play the first one. Um, uh, Star Ocean Till the End of Time was actually my first and actually I think it was my only Star Ocean. And uh, with that game, uh, they ran into one of the common issues of today's games, which is that voice acting is expensive, 3D modeling is expensive, and, you know, you get to making your game, and then you're like, okay, so these are the things that we want to have in here, um, and we've got a lot of cuts that we are going to have to make. Lord help us if we uh, we don't want to have to make them. And But by the time you get to the end of development, you're like, oh, crap. Well, something's got to give. And you can see that a little bit in how some of the stats work on some of the extra characters you get in that game. But one of the big things about Star Ocean till the, t- till the uh, end of time was while the main story didn't really change, and this is partially because it was a really complex sci-fi story. Spoilers, um, just a heads up because it's kind of important for this one. But the characters themselves, the, the thing, that the impact that they had was more of as you went through the game, you made specific decisions about um, what to do with them, how to deal with them, when you took them anywhere, um, and also what type of uh, civilizations you allowed them to be exposed to. As that was a thing about Star Ocean, was it was about the concept of you have, it's kind of that Star Trek concept 
of where you have many, many planets in a different galaxy, but that means that doesn't necessarily mean that all of their tech curves are the same. So you could end up in a planet that is in the medieval ages, uh, and when you whip out a laser gun, they're like, oh, that's magic. And uh, that's actually kind of the story in a lot of Star Ocean games is like you end up someplace that's primitive, and then you have to make some decisions about how you're supposed to interact with them. Also, usually the primitive place has discovered magic uh, and uses it differently than maybe your initial society does. But I digress. One of the big things that it did well with its characters was just having them make decisions about how they dealt with you. Um, some characters would leave if you did things the wrong way. Um, other characters um, would disappear for long periods of time and then reappear right when you needed them. But the idea was this thing of where you could actually lose them. They would actually just say, you're not the kind of person I want to be around. Uh, see ya! Uh, and things like that. Um, you could miss them very easily. Um, this is more apparent in the original Star Ocean. Granted, I didn't play it, but I've talked to a lot of people about it. Um, so I might not be quite as qualified to talk about that one, but I do know in so much that game had a lot of characters that you could miss, and it also had differing, um, differing characters that you could run into just based on who you started with, and where you went from there, um, because you could either start as a part of a uh, a part of the feudal society, or start as a um, as a star as a star traveler stranded there. Well, it's actually interesting on the point of characters. Um, I got me kind of thinking because there's actually one point, at least in story, that I thought was really kind of cool and interesting was uh, actually Final Fantasy VII, and I think almost everyone knows where I'm going from on that one with characters in Final Fantasy VII. It's you know they had the they had a point where you know they kill off a character you know Eris or Aerith depending on how pedantic you want to be with that but there's two points that I think that are really I have to give them kudos for that on it's the fact that they they went ahead and fully killed off a character and they did that within the first third of the game you know so it was a major thing and it kind of dro- drove a couple of the characters you know to continuing on and it was kind of a big thing for the game story but it was the fact that you had the character long enough that you felt you could rely on having them in your party and then they they yanked that away but it was also the fact that uh, thinking back on it Aerith or Eris was the most adept at doing magic and especially doing healing magic so I think that was to me that was a really it was a big blow because from a certain standpoint, whenever you think of an RPG game, what's the most common character class that you're going to have in your party? You're almost always going to have a healer in your party unless you're trying to do things differently. But usually you're going to have a healer in your party. It's a, it's a crux portion. So most players would get attached to their healer character. Um, which is why the which is why specifically taking away that character in that role can have such an effect. There haven't been as many chances taken in that sort of area of um, let's say mechanical storytelling. I think uh, the concept of giving the player something uh, and then taking it away and taking it away in a way that is very final. Yeah, because actually I, I can think of a couple other games where you know you. There's a character that you know goes through a permanent death, but there are so many of those that I know of where you you, you get a replacement. It's either someone who's very similar or you know has a lot of things. Like actually going back to Tales of Symphonia, there's a point where you know, you have kind of this mentor figure who's this what's called a magic swordsman for the Tales games. For those who aren't familiar with it, it's basically someone who can use swords and use magic, and they have a specific sets of a set of abilities that. You know, in those games, when you see a magic swordsman, you know they're going to have these these skills that you can use. And there's a certain point in the story where he leaves the party, and it's a fairly final leaving for him. But then, almost immediately, or very shortly thereafter, you get basically him, but he's a different character. You know, mechanically, you get the same character. You know, in terms of story and character interaction, he's different. But it's the fact that you know they. I guess the thing is like in Final Fantasy VII they don't give you someone to replace Eris. You know, there's no one who fills that same role. There's no one who has the same stats. 
and thinking on the Final Fantasy series, um, that's enough. That's a series that kind of uh, I would say kind of lives or dies on some of its storytelling. I mean, it's it's in the the JRPG area, um, which you know the Japanese RPG. Again, I feel like there's a probably a more descriptive term. Another time, we'll go over try and figure that one out. But in a lot of in a lot of the Final Fantasy games, what you're really what you're really getting in there for is there's a crazy story that's going to happen, and I kind of emphasize the crazy. Some of them are really convoluted. Others of them just kind of fall flat. I would say to an extent, ten two that kind of didn't really hit me um, very well. The dress system, rather the mechanical the mechanical play, was really good. But and it might just be the dude in me, but I just it, it felt like Jam meets Barbie, and I felt like it was kind of a disservice to Yuna as a character as well for where they where they took her and what they did with her in that game. Again, this is as a dude speaking, so a, a female might have a different uh, different opinion on that, but that's where I kind of stand on that game. But yeah, the Final Fantasy series in general really it lives or breathes off of its uh, stories, and one of the things I think is interesting about those series is they tend to they tend to err in this direction of lots and lots of lots and lots of backstory lots and lots of world mechanics the, this world works this specific way and you need to to really understand what's going on you have to learn a great deal about their magic system about their societal systems that can be a little bit daunting. I know in Final Fantasy XIII, um, that was one of the things that came up was just there were a lot of made-up words, I will say, um, that you needed to start grasping, um, and they weren't necessarily explained to you. And you know, not being, not having stuff explained to you is not a bad deal. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just when they're thrown thrown at you left and right, especially if it's something where the characters are assumed to already know that. You know, I, I feel that explaining it just so that the player can get the understanding, I feel that's a disservice to the story. Um, I, I feel that there are better ways of doing that. Some games you know, go with that by, you know, oh, well, there's this person who doesn't know what's going on. They're really just, you know, a proxy for the audience, the players, to get the information. There's, you know, stuff like, as much as I hate for the amount of information, uh, the Mass Effect Codex is a fairly good way of doing a lot of that. You know, it's it's the library. If you want to learn about it, go to the library. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. That actually brings me to another form of mechanical storytelling, which uh, I felt was very well integrated, uh, which was in the Metroid Prime series, actually. Uh, which, you know, you could say that after a fashion... The story in that game isn't really... We'll say it's not Shakespearean prose in video gaming. That's that's not what Metroid was there for. It wasn't there to tell you a story. But at the same time, there was a great deal of world development and um, a telling of what was happening all around you that you all you needed to do was look. And I think this was really interesting because it was a core part of the game that allowed you to learn about the rest of the world. And by this, I mean your scan visor. Whenever you wanted to figure out um, what you needed to do in a room, you were going to scan it. You were going to look for the scannable objects, figure out what you could interact with. But you also ended up just scanning a whole bunch of other random things in the process. And it wouldn't just say, no, no dice here, sorry, there's not a thing. It'd usually be a thing like, hey, that's a fern. Uh, they grow in this way, in this place, and it looks like you're, they're getting choked by the acid. Or, you know, that's a, that was made by a space pirate. And it looks like that space pirate died through a laceration. Not quite sure what came through here, but he's fresh. Um, you know, little things like that. Uh, it just reminds me of my, one of my favorite scanner entries for that was, uh, or series of them was records of the space pirates trying to replicate the morph ball that Samus could do. It's just all the descriptions of the horrible mangling that always happened because of that. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's some really cool world immersion stuff. Um, little, little nods to the player to keep them in there and give them a little bit more of a reason to suspend their b- disbelief for just that much longer. And so again, this is, uh, like I said, this is more of a form of a little bit of mechanical storytelling and that's one of the things that I feel is the strength that video games have, is that concept of being able to tell a lot about the game mechanically. 
um, or being able to tell a story mechanically, letting you either experience the story or affect it in a way that couldn't normally be done. I actually, uh, another game that stands out for me is actually Highway to the Moon, uh, because I I actually remember uh, going through development. You know, we we had a story lined out at first, and then due to technical limitations, for a little while we just decided we weren't going to do a story. It was just going to be, you know, go through the levels. It's an arcade game. You don't really need to know what's going on. You just know that there are things shooting at you and you shoot back. But then we figured out a way of actually implementing dialogue into the game and it's actually something that you play through. It it doesn't interrupt gameplay and I felt that was kind of rather neat. But there's also the fact that because of how we did that, there was this interesting little side effect of where you could shoot all of the dialogue bubbles and blow them up. So, <laughs> yeah, and... We we use and we use that for you know it's a great way of getting power ups and everything and it adds great to the replay value because if you've already seen it you can just blow it up get cool stuff and keep going and you actually go through it maybe a little bit faster because of how the scripting for the levels work. Definitely, that is still probably one of my favorite parts of that game. Um, was just uh, well, it's one of the favorite parts and it's funny because it was something that it came out of us trying to figure out what to do and when we realized that i think it was an idea i had had of just like wait we can just put the text on an enemy that's how you talk you just spawn an enemy that is your voice and then you can blow up your voice yeah it it was it was very fun in that way and then yeah there was an achievement for blowing up every text box in the game well almost every text box in the game yeah that was uh, but yeah that's one of the things is like uh, again storytelling uh, interactive storytelling isn't just that concept of you know you've got a story to tell and then you know you get in there and you change the way it goes but it's also making it so that the conveyance of the story is a really cool and interesting thing there are plenty of games that kind of have some of that going on with them. Uh, I think of L.A. Noir as one of them, because that's a detective story. And so the very concept is that you're trying to figure out what the story is. You're trying to discover what's happening. And so your interaction with the story is non-trivial, and that changes a lot. It's very different from just reading a detective novel, I would say. Yeah, and actually, I would also say, like, in in a in a similar way of like you know trying to find the story, um, a lot of the more modern sandbox games like um, you know Minecraft, or uh, one that actually sticks out for me is Elite Dangerous. I've been playing that uh, quite a bit recently, and so on that one you know there's there's no real like you know story objective. The story you play through is just where you're kind of this dude in this world, and it's really your choices. It's the story about you being in this world, doing what you would do, and you know, and how the world reacts to that. So, looking at some of the uh, things that we've gone over, I feel like it would be very, or let's say prudent, to kind of explore like how to do these things. Because really, that's, what's, that's kind of what's important as we move forward in, as an industry, and certainly as vernacular games. That's one of the things that we definitely want to try and do whenever we're looking at any any game concept is like how do you do this how do you make a good story in a game and how do you leverage what makes what makes games games and use that to tell a good story um so we hit a little bit on the the concept of you know mechanical mechanical storytelling which is just the idea that the things that you interact with how you play the game is a part of the telling of the storytelling so things like um, say you had a game of where you, you may lean left or right or maybe in all in like several different directions as far as um, say you have the ability to cosmetically change yourself ge- genetically and this might actually have an effect on how people look at you and more importantly an effect on how you do things and so the further you throw yourself in specific directions the more your gameplay changes and then also the more the world around you reacts to you differently. Those two things are two separate areas, but um, they're both a part of the gameplay. One, one, they're both a part of the story. One lets you feel the story, uh, and the other one lets you interact with the story, so to speak. Yeah, uh, yeah I can 
agree with that. I mean, you know, it's, and also to look at how, you know, how to make you know, games with interesting story and and utilizing the gaming media medium as a specific means of telling a story. Like, I've had actually been thinking on a game idea, and story is kind of a big part on it, because part of it is like trying to fit an actual story, you know, or overarching story into kind of like a sandbox world environment. Is kind of trying to do this as kind of a mind experiment, maybe, you know, eventually turn this into a game. And just thinking, you know, it was like, a lot of them nowadays have it where you, you like, the world itself is not determined by a designer. It's something that the computer makes by, you know, random seed generally. And so doing that, and you have the, how the world is set up, and how you start in that world affects how you start. It can affect how the world itself even interacts with itself. You know, if you have, like, you know, all these different nations in a world, but they're spread out randomly. So sometimes, you know, this really warlike nation on some people's games could be, you know, next to this really peace-loving nation, and they start sharing their culture, and, you know, so they, they start balancing out where, you know, this peace-loving nation starts getting a little bit more militaristic because it has to defend itself from this, you know, really warmongering race. But this really war warmongering race starts seeing that, well, maybe... Maybe that's not the way to go about things all the time. And then, you know, this, this mercantile group could be off on their own, completely severed off from everyone, and wither off and die because they don't really have anyone to trade with, but that was, you know, how, what they were really good at. Admittedly, figuring out, well, how did they get really good at training if they were all always off by themselves is... That's kind of where all this kind of falls apart a little. But, uh... But yeah, that concept of a we'll say a um intelligently seated procedural uh, procedurally generated game um the concept that while there's a lot that's there's a lot that gets generated at the start that you don't really have control of as a designer and moreover you have willingly relinquished control of these elements but at the same time you go and you see how those elements get generated. Basically, you give them the core starting bits, and then you let them intermingle for a while, and that will create a new world, but you still know things about it. Moreover, after doing that sort of mingling bit, then you do a little bit to gain an understanding of how those bits will interact and start watching for different key elements to appear, even designing the game to make those happen. Yeah, I kind of feel that yeah, there's quite a bit to explore, you know, in this realm, an idea of emergent story, emergent world building. You know, some games in indie have done this, you know, but I still think there's a lot of room left to explore in that facet. And definitely when we say emergent um, storytelling and emergent story, it should be noted that the term is usually used to reference when the community looks at a game and says, hey, this is totally what the story is. You know, maybe not necessarily it's something that the developer did. Um, but when we're talking about is specifically the story actually emerges from the game. It is intended that the game itself creates a new story that you interact with. And every time you play it, unless you specifically are given control over the seeds, every time you play it, you're going to see something a little bit different, something a little bit more interesting. That would be the concept. I and mean, we see that a lot in, in a lot of roguelikes, but with the, with the idea of specifically seeding it, this allows you to do slightly more interesting and slightly more deliberate things. But moving on from uh, procedurally generated uh, stories and also interactive stories, which this is still an important part of our medium and definitely probably one of the more important parts of our medium is the fact that you can interact with the story and make a change. But um, there's still a place for the story that is told to you that you basically play alongside. That's things like uh, Bayonetta or... I, the thing that comes to my mind on that is definitely games like Heavy Rain. Or there was a, another game more recently, I forget the name of it, something like, it's not The Long Dark, but something along those lines of... Oh yeah, the, the game that highlighted the butterfly effect uh, and used that greatly in its aesthetics. I cannot remember the name of the thing. Well, that's a that's a challenge to you guys in the uh, in the comments section. If you can tell me what that game was, it uh, involved a lot of psychology, 
uh, and had a lot of, actually that one was one that you kind of played alongside, but you did affect the story, um, and you decided who lives and who dies. It was a horror game. Yeah, you see, I know all of these things about it. I don't remember the name. It's not even on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> but in any case, yeah, um, but the stories that you play alongside, um, I mean, JRPGs also have this sort of thing where it's, the, the story is more that it takes you through a bunch of different battles, but the story gives you, gives credence to what you're doing in those battles and also gives you an idea of, it's more of like you're following the tale of these characters. It's like it's not actually you, but it's these characters that you're, um, that you're following the story of, and so you're being told their story. And, I mean, there's a lot of things there that go in. I mean, some of the, some of the basic tenets of good storytelling, you know, you have fully fleshed out characters. You have a plot line that actually has interest and kind of changes along the way. Or if it doesn't change, it's just intrinsically interesting in how it's presented. But from the standpoint of when we're looking at telling a story in a game, one of the things is that whatever is your plot line, that you are around it as the game goes along. Like, it doesn't just play out without you, per se. Um, even if you're not necessarily directly affecting it and you're kind of playing alongside what's happening, it still feels like you're in there. Like, if it's a game, say, if it's a game about an alien infestation um, happening, on a pl- uh, happening on a satellite, then um, you want to actually be near the infestation. If kind of unrealistic to say have you be at every single event that happens but seeing as we're doing a story we're imitating reality not necessarily being reality that gives us the ability to do these bombastic crazy things where it's just like you were at every single point where the aliens showed up (laughs) or you could make it where you play as multiple people that all interacted at, at a different point this actually makes me think of alien isolation which was hit and miss for people because not everyone actually encountered the alien. Um, it was one of those concepts of you have a random, you have a randomness that is not seated. It is simply happening um, because the AI is deciding to do different things around there, um, and because the because the AI isn't necessarily corralled, um, the player may lose some of that tension because they may never see the alien ever throughout the game. At least that's. I can't say that for full, as I have not fully played the game, I would have to. This is more, again, from a lot of the, from a lot of how the game was talked about, what people have told me about their experiences with the game. Um, so that's another one for the comments section. If you played Alien Isolation, specifically if you played it, um, or perhaps if you know someone who did and they told you about their experience, go ahead and uh, give us, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Moving on from that, the concept of telling a good story, um, one big thing is that you want to be around what's actually being told. Your characters should be involved in it in some way, or uh, unless that's like the focus of the story, is that you're just on the sidelines and you're watching it all unfurl. But if that's the case, then you need to really, you've got to do some interesting things to pull that off, I'll say. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely say that, you know, for that kind of storytelling, you definitely need to take a lot of cues from, you know, say, like, storytelling in films a lot, you know, because there's still that projection that happens from the audience or players onto the characters that are in the movie or game, depending on, again, the terminology is a bit wonky, but it is that, you know, there's a lot of cues you can learn from those because there's still, you know, how to get the audience engaged, how to convey the story in the world setting and show that you know, if something happened off screen, it happened there for a reason, how to you know show what happened there, you know, how to follow multiple characters, how to follow a single character through all of it. You know, cinema has a lot long and huge history and there's a lot that can definitely be learned there for doing kind of for lack of a better term, traditional storytelling. Yeah, I'd say that's actually the I'd say that's actually the proper term there. Um, if we're looking at um, storytelling in games, I think that would be we've got multiple ter- terminologies that we can use. Um, we have fully interactive gameplay. Uh, we have fully interactive storytelling, which means that the aspects of the story greatly depend upon what the player does, non-trivially. 
non-trivially. Um, they greatly depend on what the player does. Uh, we haven't seen... Well, I won't say that we haven't seen many massively complex games that um, really, really let this really let this run loose. I think Dragon Age is kind of an example of this sort of deal happening. Uh, Mass Effect was attempting to be that, and to an extent it, it succeeded in certain areas, for sure. And then you have the game that is more the more traditional storytelling, where you are playing the game, yes, but you're not really a fully affecting the story. Um, rather, it's being it's being thrust upon you to live through. There are plenty of examples of this. Any um, the concept that comes to mind is any of the Drake adventure games, which again I'm blanking on names. This is horrible. Uh, the you mean the Uncharted series? Yes, the Uncharted series. Good man, good man, Dragon Coder, you've saved me again from my own horrible memory. But yes, uh, the Uncharted series is a great example of a game that takes a lot of cues from film, but is still really enjoyable as a game. And it's a story, it is again a game that you play alongside the story. Like, no matter what happens, Drake's gonna win in the end, you know. He's gonna get into some scrapes. Well, okay, so he might not win in the end um, if you game over. Yeah, this is a Drake winning in the end depends heavily on do you as a player overcome the challenges presented to you by the story? Yes. So we'll say if the player is good enough, basically, are you Drake enough to be Drake? Can you Drake the Drake so hard that you win? But yeah, that's the thing. The main thing that is dependent on the player is do you succeed? Otherwise, everything that happens, like whether or not you halfway um, get to the area with half health or get to the area with full health, um, when you're on the train, you're going to be attacked by a helicopter. And Drake's going to be like, why am I being attacked by a helicopter? That's always going to happen. And we love it for that. We do, because... The thing about the traditional storytelling is that it allows you to create these. Uh, it allows you to create these areas and do those jokes, do those puns, do those things that, and do those things that you can only do when you set it up. As opposed to the fully interactive, where you may not necessarily be able to craft every experience that the player encounters, which means you won't know everything that they're going to run into. And that's just kind of how it goes. Moreover, you may not be able to get that climax that a well-crafted story has, uh, because your well-crafted stories are very well-structured, and the procedurally generated, fully interactive game is less structured. And I suppose that would be the thing, is fully interactive is not necessarily procedurally generated. Those are two very, very different things. And also one other thing that traditional gives you is voice acting budget. It's less! Oh man, it's super cheap. It's a lot cheaper when you don't have to record the lines 15, uh, 15 times over for every different decision that's made. This is part of the reason why going with a voiceless game is not necessarily a bad idea. It just means it just means you've got some more options available to you. If you can get it fully voice acted, that's well, that's amazing. I'm not quite sure how you funded that, but that's amazing. Uh, incidentally, Fallout, uh, the most recent Fallout, and how they got all of that voice acted, I'm going to give them kudos for getting that bankrolled. I mean, they're a bigger company, so they can afford some of that, but that's still a thing. That's a part of, that's actually a part of the game development process, although I'm getting, I'm getting off topic now. But yes, procedurally generated, fully procedurally generated, fully interactive, traditional. Those are three, uh, those are three forms that I can think of for uh, storytelling. Uh, the fully interactive part can actually be put into either the procedural or the, um, or the traditional. I'm feeling like there's more, there's more out there, and it looks like Dragon Coder's got something on his mind here. I was mostly just thinking of, you know, how to do a fully interactive traditional story. But, yeah, now that you say that it's been, you know, kind of been done, you know, but then I'm thinking, yeah, that's a lot like Dragon Age and Mass Effect and those types of games. Yeah, because at the end of the day, if you succeed, you will win the day. Uh, if you succeed at the very by the when you get to the end, 
um, you're going to you're going to defeat the big bad. That's the same. That case is true in Dragon Age, um, in each of the Dragon Ages. It's mostly just kind of how you get there a little bit that changes. It's basically kind of ovoidal storytelling, and by that, uh, when I say that, I mean um, the storytelling branches are like an oval, where it starts small at one end, it take and then it expands until you get to the large diameter at the center. And then it focuses back in when you get to the very end. And so the middle is where a great deal of the variance is. But that would be fully interactive, traditional storytelling. And so seeding a procedurally generated thing would be basically, take. I guess that would be taking elements of traditional storytelling, but not really. I feel like that might be its own thing or just a variant therein of procedurally generated. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. So, with that, I think that kind of covered a lot of the stuff we wanted to talk about. Um, so, to kind of recap, we, we talked a, a little bit about, you know, some of the some of the games we felt had some really good storytelling in the past. We hit on Mass Effect um, as far as what it kind of did cool, uh, some of the stuff it did badly. Say that one specifically just because it's still one of the hotbed games, I would say. It's still, it's still kind of a, a marker in gaming history, so definitely something to examine it when it comes to storytelling. And I'd say a large part of that is the fact that it was doing so well, it had such great high marks, but then it kind of, at least in the of a lot of the fan base and with a lot of you know what's been said about it, and even my own personal experience, it really kind of faltered in the third game. Especially the climax for the third game really seemed to fall flat. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about that, um, and then we started getting into things about actually uh, mechanical storytelling and what that means, what that means from a concept, just the idea of telling a story through how you interact with the game. And then we got into um, implementation of good storytelling and the different the different types of storytelling in gaming. Although, caveat there, totally not an exhaustive list. <laughs> Most definitely, and that's one of the parts of these whole series is we're we're exploring this stuff. We're learning uh, we're learning this stuff as we go along just as you are. You the viewer or rather the listener depends on what medium you're using to hear this. But uh definitely this is by no means an exhaustive list of the different ways to tell stories in games. If anything, uh, we could probably just do a full recording on just going through gaming history and saying, well, this told a story this way, and this told a story that way, and starting to group things together and figuring out how they all fit. That could definitely be, you know, a multi-year-long podcast series. Yeah, I mean, we could certainly try for it. Um, still not sure on that, and I don't think I really want to take that challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in the end, video games afford us the chance to let the player interact with the story, to let the player feel the story. And that means that we can affect the story either by actually changing what happens in it, or we can simply use the story as a means to provide challenges for the player to encounter. Both of these are interesting and strong approaches to making good games. And I'd love to see what else can come from the idea of letting the game state generate story, generate the different points of story, either creating new enemies or creating new things for the player to deal with and also reacting with the player and moreover allowing the player to really be a player in the story allowing the player to be a player yeah that's right don't be a player hater uh that had nothing to do with that and i am sorry anyway <laughs> so i'm gonna go ahead and sign off before i sh- uh, before i shoot my face off with my mouth so um <laughs> A little late for that, I think. Ah, yeah. No, the air's been shot full of holes. We just, um, we've just been shooting the breeze here. So, uh, I'm gonna let Dragon Coder here sign off. Alright, stay cool out there, internet. And this is Redco, signing off. Play the stuff you want to play, boyos. <laughs>